Well, this morning we come to the chapter 17 of Genesis in our study of the book. And just by glancing at this chapter, you can see there is a lot going on here. We're not going to be able to cover everything this week. Uh, So we're going to break it up. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 and verses 15 through 22 this morning. These are the words of God. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Moving now to verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful. And will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes. And I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac. Whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Then he finished talking with him. And God went up from Abraham. Our gracious heavenly father we pray you would open this magnificent word to us this day. In all its fullness and riches. Build us up Lord. Show us your glory and your might all of your riches that you have brought through Christ Jesus, that we would be your faithful servants in this day and time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when our text opens, we've only turned a single page from chapter 16. But in that single page turn, 13 years have gone by. When chapter 16 closed, Ishmael was a newborn And Abram was 86. Now Abram is 99 and Ishmael is a teenager. A lot of life has gone by. And we can see from our text that Abram and Sarai have pretty much settled in and accepted that the way things are is the way that they're going to be. Sarah has become resigned to the fact that she will never be a mother. She's been barren her whole life, but more to the point, she is now too old to 
to conceive. Abram and Sarah's clear both view Ishmael as the promised seed. After all, God never specified that Sarai would be the mother of the promised seed. It was kind of assumed, but God never actually said that. Giving Hagar to Abram as a second wife, that had been Sarai's idea in hopes that Hagar, as Sarai's maidservant, would essentially be the ancient form of a surrogate mother and the child being other under the umbrella of Sarai's authority would in that sense be Sarai's child. But as we saw, that plan blew up spectacularly. God had appeared to Hagar when she fleed from Sarai. God had never appeared to Sarai. God had sent Hagar back to Sarai, but meantime, he had blessed Hagar, he had blessed her child, and God himself had named her child Ishmael, which means God hears. Abram himself had then named the child Ishmael, pursuant to God's command to Hagar. And in this way, Abram had publicly acknowledged Ishmael as his firstborn son, and Hagar as his wife. And now the whole clan of Abraham, and you got to remember, we're not talking about a small extended family here. We're talking about thousands of people. Easily could have been 10,000 people part of Abram's clan, shepherds and, and, and uh, both relatives and servants, all of that kind of stuff. They have all now watched for 13 years as this boy grows up, Abram's son, named God Hears, specified by God himself, watched him grow up with his dad. It's Abram and Ishmael. It's been that way for 13 years. Furthermore, it's been since chapter 15 that God, since God has appeared to Abram. In chapter 16, he appeared to Hagar. So we don't know exactly how long it's been since chapter 15, but it's definitely been longer than 13 years. Then all of a sudden in our text, out of the blue, the Lord appears to Abram after all this time in verse 1. And we need to know that this appearance is different than the appearance we saw with Hagar in chapter 16. There, uh, God appeared as the angel of the Lord, the messenger of of the Lord. Now that is a reference to essentially the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. God the Son, before he became a man in the person of the Lord Jesus, appeared as the messenger of the Lord. We know this because in these passages it'll say it was the messenger or the angel of the Lord, but then the response of the people makes it clear that it is the Lord himself. And, and they will worship him and so forth. But most times when he appears as the angel of the Lord, not always, but most times, he will to the naked eye look like a man. This is what it was in chapter 16. To Hagar, what she sees is a dude at a spring in the desert along the road. There's this guy there. And this guy starts asking her questions. This guy starts showing knowledge that there's no way for him to have. He says, Hagar, he calls her. He says, Hagar. 
Sarai's maid. Well, how does he know Hagar's name? How does he know her, who she is, what her position is, who, who her mistress is? How does he know all this kind of stuff? And then he starts asking questions. He starts uh, asserting authority over her and giving her commands, telling her that she's pregnant, telling her she's going to have a son, what she's going to name the son. It appears to be a man, but she figures out as the conversation goes along, number one, this is not a normal man. And number two, finally, this is not a man at all. This is God. She calls the place God who sees, God who sees me. Um, But that's not the way the Lord is appearing here. He's appearing directly. And we can tell by the response of Abram. In chapter 18, God is going to again appear, but he's going to appear in the, uh, as though he is a man with two other men. They're going to be on their way to Sodom. Abram thinks they are men. He invites them for a meal. It's only in the course of conversation that he comes to recognize these aren't normal men. What this is is two angels and the Lord. That's, that's what we have going on there. So Abram has to figure that out. Here, Abram hits the deck immediately. That's because God is appearing directly. That is to say, he's appearing in the glory cloud. He's appearing in the pillar of cloud and fire. Or as Ezekiel would call it, the whirlwind of cloud and fire. That's the way it's described in the Bible. Um, And when Ezekiel got close enough to actually see in this whirlwind of cloud and fire, what he sees is angels. It's not fire at all. It's not a cloud at all. It's angels, angels that are reflecting and radiating the glory of God as he manifests his presence. That's what Abram is seeing here, and that's why his response, he knows right off. He doesn't think this is a man, not even for a split second. He knows this is the Lord. He hits the deck. So we see after God appears, after all this time, he makes it clear right off the bat that he's not just stopping by. I happen to be in the neighborhood. I thought I would stop by. How have you and Sarah been? How have you been getting along? How's Ishmael? How's everything going? How are the flocks? I mean, no, that's not what happens. God hits here and things that may have been just kind of moseying along very slowly, that's all done with. Things are going to start to happen. God puts everything in motion. He stirs everything up immediately. You have a whirlwind of fire. You're going to have a new covenant. You're going to have new names. You're going to have new duties. You're going to have a new covenant sign. You're going to have a new son of promise. You're going to have a new mother. It's all hands on deck, full scramble. And the first thing God says is, I am Almighty God. Now this in Hebrew is El Shaddai. You've probably heard that phrase. It means God Almighty or God All-Sufficient. It's a name that's specifically used by God in Scripture to emphasize His omnipotence, to emphasize that nothing is too hard for Him, and to emphasize that He always performs His promises And it is especially used by God when he makes a barren woman miraculously fertile. 
as he is going to do with Sarai in this passage. If you want more examples of that, look at Genesis chapter 28, Genesis chapter 35, and Genesis chapter 48. Now the second thing God says is, walk before me and be blameless, verse 1. Now here, God is charging Abram with a new duty. It's a, new, it's a duty that I guess you could say has been implied all along the way. When God first appears to Abram in chapter 12, he says, Get up and get out of your land, away from your family, to a land I will show you. Just like Jesus, when he's first calling the disciples, Follow me. Where are we going? Follow me. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So the duty was probably implied, but it's never been expressly given. But here it is. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, when he says be blameless, he's not calling Abram to be sinless, which is not possible in this life. And besides, it's already too late because we've already seen Abram fall short in a number of different ways since God called him. The word blameless is a Hebrew word that means to be complete or to be mature, to be finished, to become what you were meant to. To be. The same word is used of Noah in Genesis 6, verse 9, when it says that he was perfect, that's our word, he was blameless, he was mature, he was godly, he was what a godly man is supposed to be. In his generations, Noah walked with God. Now that's what's at the heart of this. Noah walked with God. The equivalent Greek word to this Hebrew word is used of Christians in the New Testament. James 1 verse 4. Let patience or endurance have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He's not talking about flawlessness. He's talking about being mature and godly um, and reflecting what God created us to be and what he saved us to be. Paul really goes into the details here and helps us understand this in Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 12. He's giving kind of his own personal testimony, his own approach of how he goes through the life of a believer himself. He says, not that I have already become perfect. In other words, I'm not sinless, I'm not flawless. But here's what I do. I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. In other words, I become what I'm supposed to be. I become, I lay hold of that for which Jesus Christ laid hold of me. I become what he laid hold of me to become. And then he says, brethren, I do not regard myself of having laid hold of it yet. I have not arrived But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, what that means is you fall short, as we all do. 1 John 1, 9, we confess our sins. God is faithful and just in Christ to forgive us of our sins. And then Paul says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, therefore, let, uh, let us therefore 
as many as are perfect, there's our word, as many as are perfect, as many as are mature and godly, have this attitude. This is the attitude of somebody who is becoming what they were created and saved to be, who is becoming more mature and godly, who is walking with God. This is the attitude they will have that Paul himself had. So that is what God is looking for here from Abram and from all those who believe Old Testament and New. We don't walk with God to become saved. We walk with God because we are saved, because he saved us through Christ. But here's the thing. God doesn't save us so that we can go stand in the corner. He saves us to be his sons and daughters. And that means walking with him because he's the father, right? So he says, son, daughter, come with me. Walk with me. Walk in my footsteps. Do what I do. Be like me. Ephesians 5.1, what does Paul say? As dear children, be imitators of God. And so that's what we see, for example, in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 2.8, you know these words. By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself. It's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should both. Okay, that's salvation. We're the recipients. God is the actor through Christ. But then, having been saved, Ephesians 5.1, which I just quoted, be imitators of God as dear children. Verse 2, and walk. Walk in love. Verse 8, walk as children of light. Verse 15, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. That's what God is getting at here when he tells Abram, walk before me, walk in my presence and be blameless. The third thing God says in our text is in verse 2. And I will make my covenant between me and you and we multiply you exceedingly. You see, this covenant in Genesis 16 is coming right out of this walk with me. Walk in my presence and be blameless. Walk in my presence and become what you're supposed to be. And... I will make my covenant between me and you. This covenant is all about that. Now, if you notice, this is the second time God has made a covenant with Abram. He's already made a covenant with him in Genesis chapter 15. We looked at that three weeks ago. And so I I hope the question that's coming up in your minds is, so how does this covenant in Genesis 17 relate to the covenant in Genesis 15. And in a nutshell, what Scripture teaches us is that this Genesis 17 covenant builds on the Genesis 15 covenant. We see in this Genesis 17 covenant the same basic promises as Genesis 15, which God summarizes up in a single phrase when he says, I will multiply you exceedingly. But then he makes these promises even more glorious. He adds some things. He makes a focus feature, this duty that we just talked about before, to walk before God and be blameless. And we have a new covenant sign, circumcision, which we will look at next week. So 
let's talk a little bit more in detail about the relationship between the Genesis 15 covenant and the Genesis 17 covenant. I think it's, it's easiest if we picture it in the analogy of a house. If you look at the two covenants together, one built on top of the other, you have a single house. Now, once a house is built, it's a single unit. But having said that, there's always a distinction and a difference between the concrete foundation and between the wooden framing on top. They are one house. They're together and they make up one house. But if you take that house and you try to make the wooden framing the foundation and you try to make the concrete foundation the top, you flip the house on its head, that house is going to collapse. And that's the way it worked with the two covenants in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. The focus, as you remember, of the Genesis 15 covenant is the person and work of Christ, which was vividly pictured when God in the pillar of cloud and fire moved down between the sacrificial animal parts. The animals had been cut in two, half and half, laid down, forming a path. God walked down that path while Abraham is doing nothing because God has incapacitated him to make it real clear that he is not producing this covenant. This is not a typical covenant where you have two who are exchanging promises, exchanging duties, exchanging what the law calls consideration, something of value. In that case, they would both walk down the path between the animal parts, and they would be saying, um, if I don't keep my promise, may what happened to these animals happen to me? May, may death come upon me if I don't keep my promise? If you do not have mutual promises for a standard covenant or contract, then you don't have a covenant. You don't have a contract. That is standard, long-standing covenant contract law. The memory of man runneth not to the contrary. There is one and only one exception to that ironclad rule, and that is a last will and testament. Testament means covenant. That's the only exception. There you have only one promiser, only one person walking down the path of death. That's what's called the testator, the one who makes the last will and testament. Here's the catch. It only goes into effect upon the death of the testator. The other party in that kind of a covenant is an heir. The job of an heir is to believe and receive. That's it. And that's the kind of covenant God was cutting in Genesis 15. Look at Hebrews 9 verse 15. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. Verse 16. For where there is a testament... There must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead. 
since it has no power at all where the testator, while the testator lives. So in this case, because this is a last will and testament covenant, not an exchange of mutual promises and obligations. Why? Because Abram and the rest of us being sinners don't qualify. We can't, we can't answer that. What God is saying by walking down that path, he's not saying, may this happen to me if I don't keep my promises. He says, this will happen to me, and that's how I will keep my promises. I will walk this path of death. There's no question Abram is not walking that. He's incapacitated. He can't do a thing. All he can do is watch. So he's saying, you're not capable of walking this path. There's only one person capable of walking this path, and that is me. That's Christ pre-incarnate saying, this is the way it's going to happen. He will have to become one of us. He will become a man so that he can taste death on our behalf and put into effect the covenant that actually saves by communicating his resurrected life to the heirs. What's our job in this covenant? The same as Abram's. Believe and receive. That's what you do as an heir. You can reject. You can renounce the relationship. But there's no way you can earn it. An inheritance is a gift. And who does it go to? Children. That's the Genesis 15 covenant. What is it about? The person and the work of Christ. That's why I say it's the foundation. If you don't have that, you don't have anything. That's why it's Genesis 15 where it says, And Abraham believed in the Lord, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's Genesis 15. Okay? What does he do? Believe. What does an heir do? Believe and receive. That's it. That's what Abram is doing there. He's accounted righteous in Genesis 15. So nothing in Genesis 17 is about becoming saved or being justified. That's already happened over 13 years before. God is teaching us some things here, so he's separating these by over 13 years. So it's real clear that while they're going to go together as one house, one is the foundation and the other is the framing that is built on top. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.11, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, the Genesis 17 covenant points back to the Genesis 15 covenant. It points back to the fact that that that's the foundation. That's how we have this relationship with God to start with. But now it's going to build on top of that. It's going to put the framing on top. The focus of the Genesis 17 covenant is walking with God in the light of salvation, becoming more and more like God as we do so. Another way you could sum this up is by saying the Genesis 15 covenant focuses on how do we as sinners come to have a relationship with the living God in the first place. The Genesis 17 covenant focuses on how do we grow in that relationship with God now that we have it. 
you put them together, you've got two sides of the same coin, right? One coin, two sides. But don't forget, that doesn't change the fact that you still got heads and tails. Don't get them confused. They're not the same, but they are two sides of the same coin. So, flipping the house over, taking the framing and making it the foundation, and taking the concrete foundation and trying to make that like it's the roof, standing the house on its head, that's exactly, you see, what the religious leaders of Israel had done by the time Jesus came. They had flipped God's covenant house upside down. They had made circumcision, simply having circumcision, and the law of Moses, simply having the law of Moses. They made that the foundation. Simply having circumcision, simply having the law of Moses saves us. But with that as the foundation, we can add faith in Jesus on top like icing on the cake. That's backwards. That house is going to collapse. There is no other foundation but Christ. That has to be the foundation. Walking with God and all the other things go on top. They are serving the foundation. So moving on to verses 4 verses uh, through 8, God here reiterates the earlier promises of descendants and land, but he's going to expand them and make them more glorious. He's going to do this by using language that echoes God's words to Adam and Eve at creation and his words to Noah and his sons when they came off the ark. Genesis 1.28, God blessed Adam and Eve. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. And he goes on, verse 9, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Verse 16, an everlasting covenant. Why? Because he's dealing with, with Noah and his sons, the same thing he was dealing with with Adam Eve. He's talking about the whole earth. He's talking about the whole world. He's talking about his glorious creational promises, which he is going to uh, restore through Christ the Savior. Genesis 17, what does he tell Abram? Verse 2, I will multiply you exceedingly. Verse 6, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful. The same concepts. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for an everlasting covenant. These things are all signaling to us that while God is talking about, in one sense, he's talking about Isaac. He's talking about physical descendants coming from Isaac. He's talking about the land of Canaan. Yes, he is. Those are real things, historical events that really happen. But those historical events, those are preliminary fulfillments. They become a lens through which Abram and others were supposed to look to see the real ultimate fulfillment of all these promises which come true in Jesus Christ, whom Isaac is a picture of. You see, this, all this kind of language, everlasting covenant, uh, this kind of worldwide scope, that's not a typical covenant because God is really dealing with his 
everlasting purposes here. And this is exactly what the New Testament tells us. Look at Romans 4.13. The promise that Abraham would be heir of the world, cosmos, was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Paul takes the promises to Abraham... And you go back and read them. They talk about the land of Canaan. Paul takes out the word Canaan and he sticks in the word cosmos. Now, how can he do that? He can do that because he understood that that's what God was really talking about. That God was using Canaan, a real place, really given to Abram's physical descendants, taken and conquered under Joshua, He's understood that's a preliminary fulfillment of what he's really talking about, which is the whole world to Christ and all of the nations. Look at Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say into seeds as of many. In other words, the promises do not go directly to descendants, plural. But as of one and to your seed, who is Christ, the promises go directly to one person, Jesus Christ. There is only one person in all of history who is the seed of Abraham in his own right, and that is Jesus Christ. The multitude comes in by those who are united to the one. That's the same way it's going to be with Isaac, we see in our text. Who are Abram? And, and Sarah going to have in terms of who is going to inherit these promises and the covenant. One person, Isaac. Isaac, the son of promise. Isaac, miraculously born. Isaac, offered up to God on the altar in chapter 22. Isaac, received back at the last minute as a picture of resurrection. Isaac is a living picture of Jesus Christ. There's only one heir, one person with whom the covenant is really made. Anybody else who wants to inherit must be united to the one. That's the gospel. And that's what God is picturing here. Look at Galatians 3 and verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's from Genesis 15. Therefore, no... Know this for sure, that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. This is why John the Baptist tells the religious leaders coming to him, he says, don't begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father. In other words, don't begin to say to yourself, I have Abraham's blood in my veins, therefore I'm saved. I have circumcision, therefore I'm saved. I have the law, therefore I'm saved. He said, not even the blood of Abraham in your veins makes any difference whatsoever unless you have the faith of Abraham in your heart. Then and only then are you a son of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the same word as nations, all the nations by faith preached what to Abraham? Preached the gospel. To Abraham beforehand saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. When did he say that to Abram? The first time was in Genesis 12. 
when he first called him from the get-go, what is God talking to Abraham about? Jesus Christ and the gospel to the nations. That's what he's talking to him about. He's going to picture that through an actual historical and geographical events in a preliminary way. But he's really talking about Christ wins the world. That's what he's talking about. He says in verse 9, So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. 29, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So this is what he's really talking about. He takes all these promises on this full global scope and in this context, he gives Abram and Sarai new names, Abraham and Sarah, verses 5 and 15. Now, both of these names, the new names, are very closely related in both sound and meaning to the originals. Uh, Abram means exalted father. Uh, Abraham means father of a multitude. Uh, Sarai and Sarah both mean princess. But you see, that's not really the point. The point is that these names are not given in the normal way. The normal way is names are assigned by parents at birth um, in hopes of who the child is going to turn out to be. These names are assigned by God, not at birth, but at the, in the making of these promises in the covenant, not in hopes of who Abram and Sarai are going to be, but in guarantee and who God is going to make them. And so going forward, every time their name is used, every time they hear their name, it is a guarantee of what God is going to do and what God is going to make them. El Shaddai, God Almighty. And finally... We see when we understand all of this, we come to understand why is it that God is so adamant that Isaac, not Ishmael, will be the promised son with whom his covenant will be established. And why is he so adamant that Sarah, not Hagar, will bear this promised seed? Well, the reason is what we've already stated. It's Isaac who is the picture of, of Christ. Isaac is the picture of Christ. Hagar's, I mean, Ishmael's birth was not prophesied and promised ahead of time, nor was he miraculously born. Isaac was both. He is the son of promise. This is why, you know, Sarah feels like, I mean, Hagar, God sees Hagar. Her son's name, Ishmael, God hears. He sees and hears Hagar. Sarah feels like God does neither sees nor hears her. Her entire life she's been going. She cannot have a child after all of this time. It's like she's been neglected. She's been forgotten. The, the truth is, is that God's eye has been on her the whole time and the glory is building behind the dam so that it's all kind of come out at one time, and she is going to be one of the most blessed women who has ever lived. You see, it's absolutely essential 
to anyone who hears that it's impossible for this woman to have a child. It has to be that way. Just like it's impossible for a virgin to have a child with Mary. It has to be that way. That's Jesus, the son of promise, miraculously born, offered up as a sacrifice to God, raised from the dead. All of that's going to be lived out in Isaac's life, which is why it has to be Isaac and it has to be Sarah. And it has to be under circumstances which no one can deny this has to be a miracle. That's why God is so insistent. You see, when he first says, Sarah's going to bear a son, I'm going to make my covenant with him. Abraham laughs, but it's not the laughter of, 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 of joy and fulfillment and victory. It's the laughter of, of incredulity and almost exasperation. It's the laughter that says, are you kidding me? After all this time, I have a son. His name's Ishmael. You told me what to name him. I love him. I've been with him for 13 years. After all this time, and Sarah's going to do the same thing in chapter 18. She's going to hear God make this promise again. She's going to do the same thing as Abraham. She's going to laugh like, are you kidding me? After all this time. But here's the thing. When Isaac is actually born, Sarah is going to say, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. That's a different laughter. This laughter is kind of like, (laughs) seriously? That laughter is the laughter of victory and joy. And what does Isaac mean? Laughter. Isaac is the laughter of God, but his laughter is the laughter of joy and victory. This is the laughter that God's going to bring Sarah to and bring Abram to and bring everyone to who hears and understands what God is doing. And so we come to see that all of these events that seem so... They seem a lot of times so happenstance and they're so stretched out. We got 13 years, nothing is going on. Uh, Sarah feels like she's been forgotten. Uh, She doesn't understand. She's actually center stage. That's not the way she feels. Uh, all, All of this stuff just seems so ragged a lot of times when it's happening. But once you see it and what God is actually doing, You look at it, I guarantee you, if you could ask Abraham and Sarah right now today, what would you change? They would say, not a thing. I wouldn't change anything. Because what God does is perfect. He is El Shaddai. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.